It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Sego, Ani, bonjour. I'm Kathy Sabokin, and this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and I am filling in today for David Moses. Well, this year marks the 175th anniversary of the birth of Louis Riel, and he's known as the founder of Manitoba. Here's just a little bit of a history lesson. Riel was born in St. Boniface, Manitoba. He was 25 when he emerged as a leader for the Métis people. And the Canadian government began surveying Métis land in Red River, which runs through St. Boniface, looking for future settlement area. And they were ignoring the Métis who already lived on the land. Well, Riel stopped the surveyors and declared that any attempt by Canada to assume authority in the area would be contested unless Ottawa first negotiated terms with the Métis. Well, he created a provisional government after seizing control of Fort Garry. This is back in 1869. And it was there that Riel created a list of rights and conditions passed on to Ottawa as terms for the province entering confederation. And these actions were called the Red River Resistance or Red River Rebellion. And long story short, the Manitoba Act that established the province included many of those conditions set out by Riel. And he was officially recognized by the Parliament of Canada and the provincial legislature as a founder of Manitoba in 1992. Well, Louis Riel and the Red River Resistance are now being honoured on a new Canada Post stamp. And on the line with me now is Elia Anoya. She's Senior Manager of Stamp Program Development at Canada Post. Hi, Elia. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me on. So excited to talk to you about this. Tell us how the stamp was developed. Well, uh, as you stated in your preamble, um, you can imagine the task that was uh, given to uh, Canada Post to try to portray the historical components and the significance of the event and the anniversary on a stamp, uh, you know, a tiny little stamp. I did uh, wonder so that. It's a lot <laughs> of information. <laughs> That's right. So at, so at some point, you have to just pick and choose what the, the elements that you want to convey and what people will actually get from the stamp immediately rather than having to explain, right? Um, and so the designers uh, came up with this uh, concept, which uh, is, um, is uh, um, the uh, image of the provisional government at uh, Fort Garry, which they thought uh, is a strong uh, component uh, for telling the story, and it's based on two historical sources. So we have an 1848 lithograph of Upper Fort Garry and a photograph of Louis Riel and his provisional government, which was taken in uh, 1870. And uh, I, I'm so happy that we were able to work with the uh, Manitoba uh, Métis Federation closely with on the stamp, as well as the Métis uh, National Council. And we did work two years in advance, because it takes two years to for the whole process to go through, but I'll explain that later. Um, and so everyone agreed that this, you know, this was a strong uh, element for, to recognize the Red River resistance and uh, to recognize the anniversary, and, and that's what we wanted to do. And I believe we've achieved it. And, and by the re, by the reaction from uh, President Chartrand, Chartre, it, they and the community, it was uh, we did our, we did our job. Yeah, I saw pictures of it. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Now, are there, tell us about the historians. You mentioned there is a team that gets together, it's discussed. How does that work? 
So, uh, so as Canada Post, let me go through this first. We take great pride in in being Canada's storyteller through our our national program. Um, our our stamps celebrate the country's landscapes and wildlife and the people and our and the achievements. Uh, so we like to mark uh, milestones and events that uh, are part of our country's history. And um, we have a group of um, uh, we have a group called our Stamp uh, Advisory Committee. And they're a group of 13 individuals. They're uh, historians. They're philatelists. We've got art uh, curators. Um, and they um, select the stamp program every year. It's uh, based on a balanced program, so we make sure that we cover the country, uh, have uh, certain elements to develop a, you know, a sound program. And then once the committee recommends uh, the program, then it goes to our board of directors to approve the program, and then once the board of directors approve it, then we'll announce the program. And and, and you can imagine we only we can only issue a limited amount of stamps. So we issue I think about 15 to 20 stamps every year, or about subjects, uh, and which translates to about 50 to 55 stamps. So it's very um, it's a very tough and challenging. Uh, job for our stamp advisory committee to narrow down the hundreds of suggestions that we receive at Canada Post to d- down to you know 20 topics. So, but this one, the Red River Resistance, they felt was necessary and an important story to tell, and we're so glad that we did. Now they're commiserating with the artists. Is there a team of artists uh, for the, uh, the the design? Yeah, of all the stamps. So. So what happens is once the committee approves or once the board of directors approves the stamp program, then we go to research, then we work with the organizations or the families, and then we solicit three design firms uh, to come up with some concepts. So we ask them for two concepts per topic, and then they go to our stamp advisory committee, and the committee will look at the uh, the stamps, the designs, and will pick one from the list. So let's say for Red River, we we went to three or four different design firms and and asked them for two images each, or two stamp concepts each. So the committee saw I think eight different concepts, and they picked uh, the one that you see, which was designed by Paprika in Montreal. Paprika, I like that. It's a good name yeah. for a firm. It is, it is. It is. They're, they're a fabulous uh, company, firm, design firm. And, I and, hope and we deal with recognized, you know, uh, graphic firms, graphic artists. Yes, this is giving me a whole new appreciation for Canada Post, just listening to all of this. And, and I think it gives uh, the audience, your audience, you know, another a, a good appreciation and understanding, or a little, a little bit of an understanding of the process. And like I said, it, it takes at least two years. We've been working on this stamp issue for two years because it takes, you know, by the time you go through the approval process, we don't dis- discuss it once at the committee. It'll go through like you know a few meetings and to make because, like I said, we're de- dealing with like hundreds of topics. How do you narrow it down? So the committee has to, you know, make sure that. Um, they have a good balance, and um, you know, so they discuss the topics for over a year or maybe two years, and then they approve it. Then we go another, you know, another year for design and tweaking it. By the time the stamp issues out, it's it's, it's a lengthy process, and people don't realize it. So it's, I'm, we're so glad that we can, you know, share all this information. Well, I love it. I'm one of these people when I buy stamps. 
I have to look at all the different options and then I choose because there's otherwise, oh, otherwise I get the queen, like stamp of the yeah. queen. Why or, is there or, always or a stamp? <laughs> How are those stamps chosen? Does she pose for photos every year? How does that work? So, the, so for the queen, we actually have to go through the whole, uh, the, uh, the official process. We have to request, uh, we go through the um, governor general's office, Rita Hall, because uh, they represent the Queen, and we uh, ask for permission to reproduce the Queen on a stamp, and then we uh, uh, get the, so, and then they send the request to Buckingham Palace, and the Queen actually looks at the stamp and approves the stamp. Uh, and and again, for the Queen, we go through the same process. We'll go through, you know, we'll go through three different, de- we'll go to three different design firms and ask for two concepts per firm. So the committee got to see, I think, six, they get to see about six to eight uh, stamps, and they, they'll select the best one. So, we, you know, we try to be different. Uh, in the past, we've done the official portraits, uh, but, and then I think there, were, there was a time where, uh, when we did one from a photograph of Brian Adams uh, of the Queen, and then we started to take, uh, uh, you know, nice photos of her when, she's like, uh, with, when she was traveling through Canada. We tried to take some uh, photos, iconic photos of her, and in different uh, areas across the country. So it, 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 you know, every every design concepts have a different uh, uh, nice Canadian touch to it, and the Canadian flag too. That seems an ongoing theme. Yes, the Canadian flag. Yes, yeah, so we try to have fun with the Canadian flag and having different uh, designs. So we've done uh, you know lighthouses over Canadian flags, or we've done um, different uh, UNESCO sites. We try to have fun with it, and then now our our current issue is uh, called From Far and Wide, and we're trying to show landscapes from across the Canada because we've got so many beautiful um, locations, and we just want Canadians to see what's in Canada and, you know, if they have a chance to go out and visit. And I think that's one of our best sellers. It's just, it's just fabulous because a lot of people don't realize that, wow, this is in Canada? Like this, let's say uh, next year we're going to do Athabasca Sand Dunes. Like who would have known that we had sand dunes in Canada or, you know, some of our beautiful mountains uh, out the Rocky Mountains or out in the East Coast and, you, you know, Yukon. And it's just fabulous. Like we're getting so much good, positive uh, feedback from the uh, uh, from far and wide. Um, what we try to do is we try to uh, get photos from local photographers. So if we went up to Yukon uh, to show a, um, a location there, we'll use a local photographer. And we'll also deal with the government of uh, Yukon to help us. Like, you know, cause they might have uh, suggestions on what areas they want us to feature uh, for the stamp. Uh, so we try to involve the uh, provincial government. We try to involve the tourism government. So there's a lot of people you deal with uh, when you look at stamps and topics. And, we're, you know, we just don't uh, issue stamps because they're stamps. Well, can the general public give input or ideas? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. We, we welcome ideas from the public, you know, organizations, anyone celebrating milestones, especially the milestones, you know, we ask two years in advance. Um, but, yes, uh, uh, families, politicians, whatever, we, we welcome all kinds of ideas and suggestions. With so and, much- and the committee will go through every single one. Trust me, they do. That's good to know. Now, with yes, with um, so many more people emailing these days, has that yep. affected the stamp program at all? Is it slowing down? 
so there's there has been a a um a reduction in the letter mail uh and we're not the only ones experiencing it other postal administrations are um but uh we find that the stamps are have touched so many people um so we're not seeing a big impact but there is an impact what are some of your favorite stamps? Mine, I, I, it's so hard because I, I work Tough with question. It, I work with it every day. Uh, okay, so let me see. So, so just so you know, uh, I'm responsible for the the whole you know the stamp program or making sure that there's it's balanced program with the committee, uh, and I'm I work two years in advance, so I'm actually working at, on 2022 and 23, uh, but and I know that 2020 hasn't even been issued. Uh, but that's how far in advance I have to work just so we make sure that it continues, it progresses. But uh, I think my favorite stamp has to be the uh, Canadian dessert stamps we issued uh, earlier this year with the Nanaima bar and with the uh, blueberry grunt and uh, the Saskatoon berry pie and the butter tart. Those are, oh my goodness, I, I missed those altogether. Can we buy stamps that were issued or are they just issued once? No, no, you can buy them. Yes, I I don't know whether there are any more left of the um, Canadian Canadian desserts, but I I believe there there should be. Uh, yes, you can go buy them online at CanadaPost.ca, or you can go uh, to the local post office, and uh, if the, if they don't have any in stock, then you can you know you can ask the uh, retailer to the to order you some, and they can uh, probably ship it to your home. Sounds like a lot of fun. Stamp collecting. It is. It is. A lot of people stamp collecting these days, re- reaching yeah, out and saying, I want this stamp or that one. Yes, we, we do have a, a community, Philatelist, and they you know, do uh, collect uh, stamps. Uh, but we're, we also deal with the, the wider consumer base that are interested in certain topics, the topical stamps. So like I said, uh, we've issued the Canadian Dessert Stamps, which has, you know, received so much attention uh, and is all positive. Well, okay, so there was a little bit of, you know, controversy, but uh, we've got the turtle stamps, the historical bridges. So sometimes these stamps touch communities, uh, and so you get more exposure. And sometimes it's just the topic itself, like the turtles was a good one. The bees were... Uh, a few years ago, we issued a set of bees, and those were outstanding. And a lot of kids love them, as well as adults. And it was so timely as well because of all the, you know, the bees and the issue with the bees. Save the bees. So it's it's, it's interesting. Every every stamp is very interesting. It's got a good history, good information, and we just want to be able to share it with the with the Canadians. I was reading online about the 2020 Canadian stamps. And yes. what I read so far is they're going to tell stories of the group of seven. Yes. VE's 75th, VE Day's 75th anniversary. Yes, we have VE Day's 75th anniversary. There's we another have, one. Uh, you have to get all of that on one stamp. There, that's, that's going to be an interesting story to tell. So how do you, so how do you tell the story of VE Day? So what Canada Post will do is probably focus on two individuals and tell their story uh, there are unique stories that uh, many that many Canadians don't know or aren't aware, and I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. One uh, that we're looking forward to: the history of radio. Yes, that should be interesting. So that was um, 
what was that? That's the 100th anniversary of the first commercial broadcast. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, a lot that's evolved over with radio and how quickly it's evolved. Uh, so it it was interesting and challenging to def, to tell the history, the story on a stamp. But you'll see it. It's actually uh, looking very good. They will be able to tell a great story with that. What are some other upcoming stamps that we have to look forward to in 2020? So we've got our, our uh, From Far and Wide uh, series of stamps. We're going to feature nine more uh, locations. We've got um, Year of the Rat stamp. We've got uh, Dahlia's, our famous flower stamps. We've also got uh, Black History Stamp Month. Uh, it's an annual uh, uh, stamp set. We've got a group of seven coming out. We've got uh, medical groundbreakers. We've got, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, history of radio. We've got our uh, e, our cultural stamps for uh, E, Diwali, and Hanukkah. Our, our uh, famous uh, Christmas stamps. We've got our our Canada Post Community Foundation stamps. A lot of stamps uh, to look forward to. <laughs> lots of stamps. Elia, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Our pleasure, and we hope to have you back again. I'd be delighted. Great. This is Elia Anoya. She is Senior Manager of Stamp Program Development at Canada Post. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app or our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M dot C-A. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses, and we'll be back after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, or our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses, and with me on the line, Caroline O'Neill, our Parliament Hill reporter. Welcome, Caroline. Thanks for having me, Kathy. These past days have been busy for you, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, there's, it's been a lot of fun. There's definitely been a lot going on the Hill as we kind of look to see how this minority government is going to shore up and what the different parties are trying to do to make sure that they can get some of their agenda pushed forward come December 5th. Right. So let's just give us a, a recap. All of the leaders have chosen their roster of critics and a little recap from you. That's right. Well, I think the one where things are really looking different would be over at the NDP with their critics. And certainly Jagmeet Singh is definitely signaling that Indigenous issues are something that he and his party will be prioritizing to the point, Kathy, that he's named himself an Indigenous issues critic along with a critic for intergovernmental affairs. Now, why would he name himself as such with a position like that? Because it just sounds like a lot on top of being leader of the NDP. You know, it does sound like a lot on top of being leader of the NDP, but Jagmeet Singh's actually been in here in town this week. We've seen what's been happening with the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal on the compensation for Indigenous children, and he's been there in the room. He's been pushing forward on that. He was one of the only leaders who brought that up during the English language debate leading up to the election. So even though he certainly does have a busy agenda, I think that this is something that he is trying to make the time to prioritize. And I think he wants not only different Indigenous peoples that he'll be working with over the next few years to know that, I also think he wants the Liberal government to know that if they want his support on some things, he will be expecting their support on other things. And I think more often than not, it will be Indigenous issues. 
Anyone else within his party? Interesting roles? Yeah, Mumila Kakak, who is a 25-year-old member of parliament. She's been named a critic. She's going to be the critic for the Canadian Northern Economic Development Agency. So that's a huge position for a 25-year-old to have, but she's also the only person who does bring that knowledge to the party. So it makes sense that she has it as the member of parliament for Nunavut. Well, it's good to have someone young and upcoming and they can build their career within the party. I agree. I also think it really signals this shift, right? Because four years ago, that was kind of what we were seeing with the Liberals, right? We were seeing this kind of youthful energy, these different voices, a different kind of engagement. But I think given this national split we've seen from the minority um, from the minority government, this is what the NDP, I think, is trying to show by having different voices who are coming in to complement the voices who have been enrolled for a while. So somebody who has been a critic for a while is Charlie Angus. He's coming back on as a critic. He'll be focusing on income inequality, affordability, and the federal economic development for Northern Ontario, as well as Indigenous youth. So I think there's a really interesting balance with the NDP's critic teams of newer voices like Mumila Kakak, and then voices who have been a little more comfortable in Parliament. Right, and like you mentioned, a lot of in- Indigenous focus. Very much so Indigenous focused. Yeah, and Charlie Angus is probably one of his strongest members of Parliament, Kathy, and he does live in a riding where there are many different Indigenous peoples and communities, and he's been very strong on Indigenous issues. I was actually at a rally for Kachashuan First Nation. People will remember earlier this year there was a severe flooding incident for the nation, and it was Charlie Angus who had a rally where he brought up different people from Kachashuan to come right to Parliament Hill. So he is someone who's been very strong on those issues, so it does make sense that he would be there too. But I think really to signal one of the stronger MPs, a rising superstar in Mumila Kakak, and then to have your leader yourself focused on Indigenous issues, I think there's a very clear message that is being sent. Right. I hope they get something done regarding water. Well, and that's the thing that we're going to have to see, right? I think especially with this throne speech, we know that all of the different party leaders have met with Justin Trudeau and they've told him what they're looking from him. And we know that one of his greatest allies could be the NDP, but I don't think that means that they're just going to be willing to compromise on anything. And again, you said water, that's something that Jagmeet Singh has been very firm about. He was one of the people who actually laid out an economic action plan that would get to those boil water advisory targets that the Liberal government was working to in the previous parliamentary session. You know, it's amazing. Some First Nations have had Boiled water advisors for 26 years. It just doesn't seem like the, doesn't seem right. It's like third world country issue. And I think people don't understand the full extent of that issue, right? It doesn't necessarily just mean you can't drink water. For people, that means you can't wash your dishes with that water. It means that if you wanted cold water, you would have to have it at a boiling boil at a, a at a boil first for a little bit and then cool it down. For some people, it also means there are problems with showering, right? And I think we don't always understand the full extent of that problem because people haven't necessarily been to those First Nations or haven't taken the time to hear what people have to say. Anyone else in in NDP uh, leader Jagmeet Singh's little cabinet of note? You know, I really do think those are some of the big the big ones that came out of it. The one thing he did that was very sly was he did name um, a critic for democratic institutions, and the reason he did this is because people will note that that didn't come back in Justin Trudeau's cabinet. You know, democratic reform was supposed to be this big thing come 2015. We no longer have an official minister for democratic reform. And so in a very cheeky way, Jagmeet Singh still decided to slide that forward and to kind of have that person not facing opposition. I think, again, sending a message about how he and his party see the government and their attitudes toward democratic reform in the country. And for all of these issues, it's always going to put a spotlight on the NDP. So he was very smart in those moves. 
Exactly. I, I do think they were very smart moves. And again, bearing in mind that the NDP came off of an election result that I don't really think they were looking for. So they have had to take the time to try and show that there is strength. And I think if they do have a strong enough cabinet, they're going to be working to make that case for the next four years. They seem to have gained some momentum in the run up to the election, but then somewhere along the election results, it really didn't work out for them, especially in Quebec. What about Andrew Scheer? What's happening with the Conservatives? You know, the biggest one is that they had a huge loss in Lisa Wright not being reelected as member of parliament for Milton. She'd been in that role for 11 years and she was his second in command. And I think many people would say that she was a really strong person to have there, especially when it seems like Shear's leadership is slandering. She's not there now. So he's named Leona Alasov to that role. And again, a little bit of a twisting the knife to the liberals because people will remember her for actually crossing the floor. So she had been elected as a liberal back in 2015 and later crossed the floor to join the conservatives. So now she's the second in command. Okay. What are your thoughts on that? In fact, she crossed the floor Um, and now she's second in command. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that if you're looking at kind of the symbolism and the imagery, you can see why that choice was made. Um, I also think she's a little bit of a new face to have in some of the upper leadership. For the most part, a lot of people are staying in the same roles, like House Leader Candace Bergen. So I think to kind of get that new place in there. Now, things are very fraught in the Conservative Party, and it kind of seems like people are upset regardless. So some people wanted new blood. Leon Aslev comes in, and some people just still aren't happy. I think it'll be interesting to see how she proves herself. You know, she was very vocal, especially towards the end of the last parliamentary session, as she kind of regained her footing as somebody who did cross the floor. And I think it's something that Andrew Shear is really going to try to showcase and highlight again, especially in a divided country saying, you know, here is someone who was so upset with the liberals that she left. So it's not just the voters, it's actually the people who were elected with the party. Okay. Now, Andrew Shear, he's saying he wants to stay on no matter what. That's what I'm hearing. He is saying that. He's saying that, but it seems a little different. So he's been, you know, kind of going on these listening tours and speaking with different people. And he had a very rough ride in Montreal where people were calling for him to step down. Now, a lot of people publicly are kind of saying that's not the case. That's not what they want. There will be a leadership convention in April. We'll see there. But people are unhappy. I think many people really viewed this as Andrew Shear's election to win. It should have been a no-brainer given all of the scandals that especially surrounded the Liberals. But it really didn't work out that way. And I think that upset a lot of people. Anyone else on his roster of note? So they haven't fully announced their entire official opposition, so we're still waiting to hear from that. But we also know that he's entering all of this having fired two of his top advisors. He said goodbye to Marc-Andre Leclerc and Brock Harrison, who led a lot of the charge during the campaign and towards the end of the parliamentary session. So I think that there is a little bit of a cleaning of houses, he's trying to figure out who can be the team to bring them forward. I wouldn't be surprised, though, to see some of the familiar faces who have made up the shadow cabinet before. So somebody like Pierre Polyev, I would assume, would stay on for finances, but we'll have to see. Now, he's met with Trudeau, so has Jagmeet Singh. And the Prime Minister has also been meeting with premiers across the provinces. And anything shaping up with any of those meetings? Yeah, it's you know, national unity really is, I think, what people are trying to go for, right? And it does seem like some people are trying to make those concessions on all sides. I think a meeting of no, Kathy, would be when Doug Ford came to Parliament Hill and he had the chance to sit down with the Prime Minister. And Ford really stressed that he he wanted to come together. He said it was a friendly and positive meeting. And he wants to be able to work with the Prime Minister to make sure that there is a little bit more of national unity. And Ford himself was uncharacteristically very quiet during this election with many people wondering if that had to do with Andrew Scheer, but it does seem like 
there are people who are willing to work to see if we can get this country to a little bit more of a unified point. Right. He did say, let's set the politics aside now and just focus on the work that has to be done. Because, And I think that's, yeah, that's the message. And I think in a way that is the message that the voters were trying to send, right? With numbers that were kind of so skewed, what they were trying to say was we're really not thrilled with perhaps any of the options, but I think they were also tired of watching people, especially toward the end of the parliamentary session, just bicker with each other. Christia Freeland, named Deputy PM. She's been doing some work out west. What's happening there? Yeah, that's that's a huge promotion for her deputy prime minister, right? I think cabinet shuffles are always a fun way to kind of look at where people are in the prime minister's books. Um, right. And def- she had a very successful parliamentary session, started off in international trade, worked her way over to foreign affairs. You can argue that a lot of where we are with USMCA because of her. And so this is a big step for her. And then moving on into intergovernmental affairs. A lot of interesting reasons why she was chosen for that. Number one, I would say it's because she was probably one of the more successful cabinet ministers that he has. The other reason is the Liberals were shut out of Alberta and Saskatchewan, but Christia Freeland was born in Peace River and she did go to high school in Edmonton. So I think if you're trying to make a bit more of that link, there's the link that you can have. So they're not sending a total outsider, although she does represent a Toronto riding and spent a lot of time abroad. Her roots are in Western Canada. And I think that's definitely something that she'll be trying to lever- leverage as she goes and meets with Canadians and as she goes and meets with the different premiers and other politicians. It's true. There's a lot to be said for your roots. I mean, you can understand. There's a, a level of understanding that happens when you have the same roots as other people. I, I totally agree with that, Kathy. And I think, you know, people in Western Canada, I don't think they felt hurt or they felt some, in some ways perhaps mischaracterized during the election. And I think they really are looking for the federal government, especially to listen to them. We've seen the way the provincial elections have been turning out. And I think that is sending a message to the federal government. And I think that somebody who did spend time in Alberta and knows about the Alberta economy, knows what drives it, knows some of the different issues that one can face. I think that will be more helpful. And hopefully that is something that she'll be able to handle. And again, she handled negotiations with Donald Trump. So hopefully she can bring some of that um, some of those tactics over to trying to soothe out some of the unity here in Canada. What's been happening with the block? That will be really interesting because those numbers are way higher than anyone expected, but the block is kind of a, kind of a wild card, right? Given all the seats that they have, they could have some sway, but it's been made very clear by that his own only real interest is to Quebec, right? So that kind of puts, the Liberals in an interesting position if they're trying to negotiate, because that does then kind of leave the NDP and the Conservatives as their only really ally. But it does mean that you never really know how they could vote, right? If their only interest is for, for like, it's for the good of their province. Okay, well, will he be announcing a cabinet as well? Even though I, we haven't heard anything about that yet. I mean, he's not in an official opposition status. It would be interesting, though, if he did. I think that this election was a really good introduction for many people to Yves-François Blanchet and to the Bloc. I think a lot of people only ever associate the Bloc with separatism, and obviously there's reasons for, for why people do. But I think they also heard some of his thoughts on things like Indigenous issues. I think they heard their thoughts on things like climate change, but also, you know, with Bill 21 as well, There, I think there's still some uneasiness there. Okay. So what happens next? What's coming up? Well going to be December 5th. That's when we're going to see Parliament again. 
And that's going to be a really interesting day because there's going to be a lot going on. Now, the first thing that the MPs have to do at any new parliament is they need to elect a Speaker of the House. They don't have that yet. So that will be done totally by a secret and ranked ballot. So the only thing we'll hear is the name of that winner. We're not going to know how many ballots it took, and we're not going to know by how many votes they won. So it'll be interesting to see who that speaker is. And it is worth noting that any member of parliament is actually eligible, except for party leaders and ministers. So that's a pretty wide array of people there. And that's what happens the first day or before the first day that everyone's convened? that That will happen the first day. All right. What else happens the first day? What do you anticipate? You know, there's going to be a lot of different things. There's a lot of ceremony, first of all. Um, you know, they have, to go to, they have to go to Senate a few times. They're going to be summoned by the senators to let them know that they have to elect a speaker. They'll later be summoned to let them know that they're going to have to have the throne speech. So December 5th is really a pomp and circumstance kind of day. Um, you know, there might be a few kind of bills or motions that we're going to look at, and that's probably what we would consider a confidence vote. And that is kind of what I think people view as the big drama, but it could come down to a really mundane bill because it's those mundane bills that are needed to set up parliament first. So those private member bills that people always talk about, those won't even be a factor until the new year. And it won't even be the very first bill because the first bill that we always have is called C1. And it's basically a bill that affirms that the House has the right to consider anything it thinks is important. So the first bill is kind of a write-off. The second bill is the one that could be seen as the confidence vote. Are you going to be there? I don't know yet what our plans are for that. You know, I'm hopeful that I could be there, but just kind of keeping an eye on some of the other things going on in the city. We have a little bit of a, a messy LRT system and some other things, but I'll definitely be watching regardless. Right. You're, what's happening with your OC Transpo? Yeah, well, actually, um, the provincial government has offered to intervene. One of the cabinet ministers, Lisa McLeod, who is like, the cabinet minister for tourism, she also represents the Nepean area here as a member of provincial parliament, has actually spoken with our mayor. We've had a LRT system that launched back in October, and it's been pretty fraught with problems. So I've heard people complain about the TTC. Wait till you try LRT. I promise you the TTC isn't, isn't that bad. The real problem with the CAPI is that it's not properly synced up with the buses. And so for some people, they have been tacking on an additional 45, com- uh, 45 minutes onto their commute. That's a long commute. 45 minutes additional. Yeah. It is a long commute. Long. And yeah. Right. There have been some questions, too, about, you know, how the trains are working. If people try to keep the doors open, it triggers a stall. So there have been there have been a lot of concerns. So that's definitely something that's keeping us on our toes. But we we do know that the provincial government has said it's willing to work to get more buses in the fleet. And they've actually called on the federal government to help as well. So I'll be interested to see in kind of the first few weeks of parliament what will happen. And for us in Ottawa, one of our Ottawa members of parliament, Catherine McKenna, has now moved over as the infrastructure minister. So I'm sure that that's probably something that she's going to be addressing fairly soon, or if not, people will be coming to her. Exactly. Anything else in Ottawa worth mentioning? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh my I've goodness. opened you know, a can think... of worms here. <laughs> you have opened a can of worms. One of the things, actually, that I wanted to point out, not necessarily Ottawa, but Jagmeet Singh is going to be heading up to um, Callaway for the first time. So he notably didn't make his way there during the election campaign, but he is going to be going up along with Mumala Kakak, and he has a pretty packed agenda where he's going to be going to different high schools, he's going to be going to some craft fairs, and he's actually going to meet with the provincial government there. So I would definitely keep an eye on that visit, because I think, again, that's really setting the agenda of what's to come. And there were, there were a few people who found it kind of odd that he didn't make his way there on the campaign trail. 
Well, Caroline, thanks so much for the update. Always a pleasure to talk to you. It's Caroline O'Neill, Element FM's Parliament Hill reporter. Thanks, Kathy. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, or our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. Well, if you have or haven't yet been to Ottawa, the National Gallery of Canada is one of the capital city's top tourist attractions. And one of the current exhibitions is called Apadakwane, Continuous Fire. It's the second exhibition in the National Gallery of Canada's series of presentations of contemporary international Indigenous art. And with me on the line is one of the curators, Greg Hill is Senior Curator of Indigenous Art for the National Gallery of Canada. Hi, Greg. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm very, very well. Tell us about Abadakwane, Continuous Fire. Yes, well, it's uh, the second in a series of exhibitions of international Indigenous art that uh, we've been working on. The first one was in 2013, so... Um, they're being the plan is to present them every four to six years. Uh, so Abadakwane is uh, is th- this iteration of that, um, and it's a large scale exhibition that has uh, over seventy artists, over one hundred works, um, artists that come from different indigenous affiliations, nations, uh, over forty from all over the world. So. That's artists that uh, that uh, offer, that's I mean, incredible from, from countries. Yeah, sixteen countries. That is amazing. How does something of that size and scope come together? It well, I mean, it's uh, it takes a couple of years to put a show like that together. Um, it takes a lot of people. The National Gallery is a large institution. Um, we have a curatorial team. That's the three of us. Uh, so co-curator is uh, Rochelle Dickinson, and then uh, second co-curator is Christina Lund, and three of us are the core curatorial team based at the gallery, and then we have uh, consulting curators um, and a team of advisors that are placed uh, around the world. That's amazing. Now, you 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 have animations, art in all it's media. Every media, everything you can imagine and more. Um, because you really can't imagine some of the things that uh, that are on view. Um, there's public commissions. There's sorry, uh, commissions in the public spaces of the gallery. Um, there's performances. There's video. There's photographs. There's painting. There's weaving. There's beadwork. Um, just about, uh, as I said, just about everything you could you could imagine. Well, what, in your opinion, are some of the top must-see sections of the exhibit? Well, that's always a, a hard thing to answer. I mean, I think it's, uh, you must see it all. Um, and that starts uh, at the door, uh, the entrance to the gallery, um, and it continues through uh, the public spaces into the special exhibition gallery. So, I mean, it's about... Uh, there, there are very standout works in terms of their scale and where they're placed in the gallery that uh, that really led through because 
there are other amazing works that pull you into the room that that you that you just have to go and see. Now you mentioned sixteen countries that the indigenous artwork comes from. Any any little interesting countries, maybe obscure areas of the world we might not think of? Sure. I mean, I think uh, for uh, a lot of viewers that come to the exhibition, and I think especially non-Indigenous viewers, the idea that Indigenous peoples are all over the world is a new concept. Um, however, you know, the, this. so what we're talking about when we talk about uh, Indigenous artists coming from Benin or from Nigeria or from Guatemala, um, Russia, the, the Nordic countries from Taiwan, um, that's, a, that's a surprise to many. And then the kind of work that they make uh, has, a, has a relationship to what uh, indigenous peoples in North America are making, and that, that's a surprise too. Um, so there's a lot... There's a lot to uh, a lot of connections, but also a lot of diversity in the work. Sounds incredible. Now, is this a traveling art exhibit, or is the National Gallery of Canada its only stop? It is conceived primarily as a one-time kind of deal. Um, come to the gallery and see it because of the scale of the show. We are. I, I, I do have to say we are considering um, trying to find a way to tour parts of it, but uh, but it, I mean to get the full experience you would have to you would have to see the show presented here as it is because it's uh, it's really not possible to because of the scale of it and and the works that are cre- like site specific created specifically for certain spaces um, and the way that they inhabit those spaces um, it would be difficult to tour. Difficult to move that around. Well, what about yeah. the, the Canadian component of the exhibit? Tell us about that. You mean uh, Indigenous artists from Canada? Yes. That are in the exhibit? Mm-hmm. There's a number. There's works by uh, an artist who's based in Montreal, Dana Danger. And she has created uh, masks that are uh, covered in beads. And... Those relate to uh, her close uh, community of, of fellow artists and colleagues that she refers to as kin. Um, so there's that kind of brings an idea into the into uh, our discussion of the exhibition uh, as relatedness. So there's three kinds of core concepts that we that we try to get through. Um, that I can elaborate more on later, or, or my colleague Rochelle can, but uh, but that's just one example. There are many on the floor. Uh, as you first enter the gallery space, is worked by Joy T. Arcand and uses and has placed crease labics on the floor uh, in re- these really hot pink neon colors, um, which is which is quite uh, visually stunning and and. Uh, and I think a powerful work because of what it says to the presence of language, presence of indigenous culture, and a kind of uh, reclaiming of that knowledge and uh, and revitalization of language as well. Yeah, so I was just wondering, Abadakwane, that means continuous fire? Yeah, so that's coming from uh, Kirikinzibi, so 
Algonquin community north of Ottawa. So yeah, so it's Algonquin of uh, Anishinaabemowin language, uh, and uh, and it comes through consultation with the Elders Language Committee there. Um, when we were, we asked them, we were looking for an appropriate word because the uh, the first exhibition that we had was called Sagahan, which translates to to ignite something, to to start a fire. So keeping with that fire metaphor, um, they offered the word uh, continuous fire, Abadakwane, um, to uh, so we could continue this exhibition. And why why that name, continuous fire, continues fire? Because the uh, it's continuing with the fire metaphor. So we started the fire in 2013, and now we're continuing the fire in 2019. And our next uh, exhibition, you know, we will continue that. We will continue with it as well. So it's like that fire is continuing to burn uh, in, you know, in the work of the artists. Well, Greg, I always like to ask, I'm a curious person, how did you get involved in the art world? I get, got involved in this uh, primarily as an artist. Um, my training was first as an artist, and then I came to Ottawa to find more information for my artwork. Um, I did a master's degree here, and during that process, I started to learn more about the lack of representation of Indigenous artists in in galleries, um, and uh, and I started to realize I was could be in more position to make changes there. So, um, because of the national institutions that are that are here and. Uh, and one thing led to another. Um, I started working at the the National Gallery in the year 2000 to bring uh, Indigenous art into the Canadian galleries. And has the uh, representation yeah. of Indigenous artists improved? It, I would say, yes, uh, very much so. Um, it's now that you know, at that time in 2000, and then not until 2003 when. We first uh, launched a project called Art of This Land. Um, there wasn't one work by an Indigenous artist in the Canadian galleries, you know, so the galleries that told the story of the history of art in the lands now known as Canada, um, there was nothing by an Indigenous artist. So now there's a, a permanent uh, installation revision of, of those spaces, um, which got a major reboot in, in 2017. And the, even the galleries are named now the uh, Canadian and Indigenous galleries. There's over 200 works by Indigenous artists that are in those galleries, and they're not going to go away. Uh, so just in those galleries, that's a big change. Also, the gallery has a Department of Indigenous Art now, and we actively uh, purchase works for the collection and are building a collection. Um, and this has been an ongoing process. And so exhibitions like Abadakwane and solo exhibitions for Indigenous artists are part of uh, this cycle of change, uh, which is gathering momentum um, at the National Gallery of Canada. Well, Greg, thank you so very much. And when can people see the exhibit? 
It's on view uh, now until April 5th. Um, Thursday nights are free after 5 o'clock. Um, and, uh, and there's reasons to come back. You should check the website if you're interested in coming. There's ongoing programming throughout the exhibition. So even though the, the exhibition is opened um, and works are on the wall, several of the works in the exhibition are actually going to change uh, during, the during the run of the exhibition because the artists will be coming back and transforming them, doing a performance art piece. Um, there's also film screenings and, uh, and a lot of programming put in place by the education department to, to activate the spaces and have talks in there and that kind of thing. Well, Greg, thank you so very much. Great to You're talk to you. Greg Hill, Senior Curator of Indigenous Art at the National Gallery of Canada. Okay, now we can switch over to yeah. Rochelle. Yeah. Rochelle Dickinson is Associate Curator of Indigenous Art at the National Gallery of Canada, and she joins me on the line now. Welcome, Rochelle. Hi. Well, we've been hearing a lot about Abadakwane, Continuous Fire. What role did you play? Uh, initially, I started on the project as a curatorial assistant and then began working as an associate curator and co-curator uh, last uh, early, early in the winter last year. And aside from, uh, aside from continuous fire, the National Gallery has a long history of featuring Indigenous art. Tell us more. It does, yeah. Um, since the department, the Indigenous art department that Greg mentioned earlier, was instituted in 2007, uh, Indigenous exhibitions activities have been steady and consistently strong. Um, one such thing that Greg referred to earlier is the solo exhibitions, for example, that he curated on Carl Beam and Alex Janvier. Uh, also, Sakahan and the continuing series that includes Abadakune. So this series is ongoing uh, well into the future. There's no there's no cutoff date for the for this activity, this particular exhibition activity. In addition to that, um, as Greg mentioned, we are also always actively collecting Indigenous art and have an extended mandate that includes international Indigenous art as well as historical and contemporary art. And what are some of the artworks you're particularly drawn to, just on your own personal level? I do not have a favorite. It is really <laughs> difficult to say. Um, when we conceived of the exhibition, Christine and, and uh, Greg and I, um, there were three key ideas that, that emerged out of the works uh, when we started to pull them together for the exhibition. Those ideas are continuity, activation, and relatedness. And there are several larger format works in the exhibition that uh, carry all those ideas in them. Um, the first one for me would be Yor Nango, his uh, Sami Architectural Library, specifically because uh, Yor Nango's piece broke precedent here, or rather set precedent here at the National Gallery by being an intervention into a previously uh, a space that was not previously used for exhibition, the front lobby, which is a, an initiative uh, from our director, uh, Sasha Suda, Dr. Sasha Suda. And in addition to, you know, innovating within this new space in the front foyer, there was also community-based engagement in the amphitheater outside where there was uh, skinning and hide tanning going on for at least two weeks. And so Indigenous artists and folks from the Ottawa community and beyond were invited to uh, contribute to uh, this workshop, and p many people brought their own hides, and in fact, it was my first opportunity to skin a moose hide. 
that I have, that has since been put into your Nengo's installation. Oh my goodness! So it's an amazing story. So we have all three of the key ideas um, activated because your Nengo's practice is really about creating community to transmit and share knowledge through relationships that are created in the production of his work. Now, I'm just curious, because the art world, that's tough. It takes a long time, a lot of showings before a lot of art gets noticed. Mm-hmm. How is it that the gallery finds Indigenous art, I mean, from very remote communities? Right. So for the, in the National Gallery staff, Greg and Christine in particular, both of them have been with the institution for many years. Um, Christine Lalonde has focused predominantly on art, artwork made by Indigenous people, uh, sorry, by Inuit people, and she's created strong relationships with the North through over the years of her curatorial practice. Um, equally, uh, in the South, Greg Hill has long relationships um, with Indigenous artists all across the country. So part of what the department does and, and is committed to is creating and maintaining these relationships, certainly from my own practice uh, as a curator and as a scholar, also as a maker, I have long-standing relationships with Indigenous artists across the country as well. When we began to collect and exhibit international art, those relationships expanded internationally. So we work really hard to create and maintain relationships with artists across the globe. We also have colleagues that we work with, so Greg had mentioned, the consulting curators. Those curators shared their networks with us and their research and their knowledge with us. So again, it was a form of knowledge transfer. And in fact, Mata Aho, the large um, sculptural installation in the rotunda called Aka, was recommended by one of our consulting curators, Candace Hopkins. So the acquisition of knowledge to build an exhibition like this occurs, you're right, over many years and many different kinds of relationships. And when we began to work on Abadakwane, Greg and Christine uh, activated and accessed those relationships in order to pull together an extensive body of work from which we could draw. Is there any Indigenous art that from Canada that moves around to other, other museums outside of the country? I know I've seen quite a bit when I've been in the U.S. Sorry, can you repeat the question? Is there any Canadian Indigenous art that makes its way around the world? For example, right now you're in, in the Continuous Fire exhibit. Mm-hmm. You have artwork from 16 different Indigenous communities in 16 countries. Does mm-hmm. Canadian art also get moved around to different countries? I've seen it in the U.S. in many galleries. Yeah, very much so. So we have a couple of artists in the exhibition, Barry Ace, for example, as well as Rebecca Belmore, who have international exhibition um, activities and, and profiles. So um, Rebecca Belmore's piece in the exhibition, it's called From Inside in English, um, that was actually created for Documenta and, and, and built for Greece to overlook the Parthenon. So um, likewise, Mary Ace's um, beading and multimedia practice, is uh, he's widely collected uh, in Europe, but specifically in Zurich. So the, uh, many Canadian artists in the exhibition have these international relationships as well because there's a real interest in, and I think there's a... a, a a critical requirement for global communities to think about what indigenous knowledges are about and what they look like and who is responsible for them. And I'm just curious, Rochelle, same question I asked Greg earlier is, how did you get involved in the art world? Uh, I started also as a maker. 
I began as an artist, and then uh, I, when I was in university, I began to look into my own ancestry, my own uh, connections to Indigenous community, and realized that there was no academic support for those kinds of activities. And so I, I became very quickly interested in the way that institutions like art galleries and um, universities create particular kinds of knowledge about Indigenous people, and now people of color as well, uh, in support of a, a kind of Canadian nationalism. Um, that research has continued on into a PhD, which I'm currently working on at Carleton University, where I'm thinking about how uh, Indigenous art can help to change the stories that we tell about Canada and about our relationship to citizenship and belonging. Well, it sounds like you're doing a great job at the National Gallery, and I want to thank you for being on our show today. Thank you. Thanks, Rochelle. That's Rochelle Dickinson, Associate Curator of Indigenous Art at the National Gallery of Canada. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening. <laughs>